Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, we're taking a look at a show that suffered from maybe the worst Halloween curse we've ever seen. It's WCW Halloween Havoc 1995. Kyush, we've done some good shows, and we've done some bad shows. I don't think we've ever done a weirder show than this. Let's be very clear. We've covered the gamut from all sorts of stuff. We've covered TNA and the wackiest WWE stuff and WCW stuff from 2000. The entire gamut of like weird and wacky and awesome stuff. This is the dumbest fucking show we've ever covered in any context ever. Segment for segment, there is so much stupidity and weirdness oozing out of every pore. It is insane. So to establish where we are... The last, most, kind of most recent WCW show we covered was Bash the Beach 94. That was Hulk Hogan's WCW debut. Hogan won the title from Ric Flair on that show. Um, As we come around to Halloween Havoc 95, Hogan is still the champion. So he's been the champion for well over a year. What do you think of that as a creative decision at this point um, for the company and at this point in Hogan's career? I mean, on one hand, it does seem kind of like... Hulk Hogan was stale when he came in. He had been stale for a long time. So just putting him on top of your company and just leaving him there for a year, as a week-to-week television watcher, it sounds incredibly boring. But since there's trying to build the name of WCW back up and make it a viable brand, I don't know what other decision you could possibly make. There's nobody in this company remotely on his level. No, there's definitely not. Although he is far from peak form, as we'll see tonight. Um so big things that have happened in the interim in WCW. Um, at Halloween Havoc 94, um, Hulk Hogan beat Ric Flair in a steel cage match where Flair promised he would retire if he didn't beat Hogan. I believe Mr. T was either the referee or the guest enforcer for that match. Hogan going back to the well, bringing his um ended with Hogan's friend Brutus the Barber Beefcake turning on him. And that set up our Starcade main event of Hogan against Brutus Beefcake. Yes, that actually happened. Guys, this is a thing that took place for real. <laughs> Hogan versus Brutus the fucking Barber. And you know the entire time that they were in WWE together, Hogan was like, brother, I can't wait till we figure out a way to get you in the main event with me. <laughs> And they actually found a way to do it, and it's just an assault on the senses. Yeah, that's the main event of WCW's Starcade. WCW's Uh, version of WrestleMania is main evented by Hogan versus Beefcake as the Butcher, which is just Bruce Beefcake and playing times. And let's be clear, like, Brutus the Barber Beefcake on that show was Randy Savage. Uh, made also on that show, Randy Savage. Yeah. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Also on that show, Randy Savage made his WCW pay-per-view debut. Um, He had debuted shortly before Starcade 94, uh, doing a promo promising that he would either uh, shake Hogan's hand across the face. He ended up um, joining Hogan, helping him retain the title and uh, fight off the bad guys, the uh, Dungeon of Doom, which Bully's still feuding with here a year later. 
the entire time from this period, basically all the way until Hogan does turn heel and creates the NWO, this entire company is just becomes obsessed with the idea of people turning on Hulk Hogan and Sting. Like Sting and Hulk Hogan are the only real baby faces in the whole company. And they are just constantly walking on eggshells in paranoia that their friends are going to betray them. And then inevitably those friends betray them. <laughs> the idea of bringing in Savage and having him and Hogan team up with the vision that Savage is going to eventually turn on Hogan and you know, you're going to try to recreate the mega powers exploding is a good idea. They had never had that you know big pay-per-view one-on-one rematch alive. so i think the idea of building towards that is a good one but um so i mean the biggest development we've had is uh, uh september 4th 1995 wcw launch as a wcw monday night show coming about a month removed from that when this down. I don't really want to go big into the first Nitro because we'll you know cover that a different time and the events that led to that. But you know, fair to say, total game changer for WCW to be going live on Monday nights head to head against Raw. Oh God, yeah. Even if it does, if it takes a good long while before Nitro actually becomes a significant thing of its own, it, it is at least puts them in the game in a way that they had never been before. So, yeah, I mean, this first Nitro draws much higher ratings uh, than anyone anticipates. They are immediately uh, competitive with the WWF. And, I mean, from a creative perspective, putting on a much more interesting show, the WWF has a very stale product by the fall of 1995. You know, they've got SummerSlam has just been main evented by Diesel versus Mabel is where the WWF is at this point. Ugh. (laughs) <laughs> so the buzz uh, leading into that first Nitro was that Vader would wrestle Hogan on the show and that they might even switch the title. But Vader gets fired from WCW after his infamous fight with Paul Orndorff. Yeah, and that's one of, like, just last week we got the opportunity to talk about one of the most famous backstage fights in the history of wrestling, the the, the famous scissor incident. This is another one of those where Vader gets his ass worked by old man Paul Orndorff. Yeah. Now, I've read some versions of this that suggest that Orndorff sucker punched him as Vader was being held back and then went a little far, you know, stomping on him. But at the end of this, it's Vader who gets fired. I don't know. I think he was on his way out in any case. Yeah, I don't think that they necessarily were worried too much about Vader or his feelings or anything like that. (laughs) And it had been years since Vader had really been used properly. He kind of was on a straight downhill trajectory ever since the Flair Star- Starcade main event. So yeah. it wasn't exactly confusing to see the writing on the wall for him. Yeah. By this point, yeah, they've just totally jobbed him out to both Flair and Hogan. So there's just, he's not the monster that he was. Um, what they end up doing is they kind of, I mean, essentially make a trade where they get Lex Luger and they lose Vader. I mean, who do you think that worked out? I mean, obviously, Luger had a much better run with WCW than Vader did with the WWF, which I think anyone watching in 1995 would have been very surprised that it turned out that way. I'm about to say, I think if WWE had had an option like, hey, uh, if you trade us Luger, we'll give you Vader, they would have taken that oh 10 my God. out of 10 times. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the Luger 
you know, the Luger showing up in WCW has become a really famous moment in wrestling history. Rightfully so. You know, our first kind of huge, our first ship jump of the Monday Night Wars, the first time, I, the first, like, really, like, holy shit live TV wrestling moment that jumps out at me. Um, right. At least in a very long time, since, like, the Hogan-Andre title switch on NBC uh, back in the day. Um, to just have Lex Luger, who in everyone's mind was under a WWF contract walk out on the first nitro on live TV was a bombshell moment. Like not even Vince and like the WWF office knew that that was happening. Which to some extent, I've always felt a little bit bad for them on that score because like this was a time before you really had to worry about that sort of thing. It just wasn't something that you ever had to think about happening. And then, bam, it happens, and it completely changes the rules for basically the rest of the decade. Yeah. So Luger had, like, wrestled on the WWF house shows up in Canada that weekend, like Saturday, Sunday. And I think, like, Sunday night, like, WCW sent a plane to get him, and he just, like, secretly checked out of his hotel, went to the airport that night. They flew him to Minneapolis, like, kept him in a hotel room, kept him in a limo backstage so nobody knew he was coming out. And then and he just walks out on live TV. And I mean, that's pretty wild, especially since Bischoff didn't even think that he wanted Luger. It was just a favor to Sting. So basically, like, Bischoff's just using him for this moment. Like, hey, bring yeah. him out. Gosh, what a surprise. That'll set the tone for Nitro. And then he was just going to job his ass out. Yeah. And they, I, mean, I think the deal they had him on was like $1,000 a night, like no guarantee on a number of dates. So like... They've got him for, like, the smallest amount of money you could possibly pay somebody of that stature. And, I mean, for somebody the stature of Luger to be taking, like, such a prove-it-to-me deal is pretty incredible because he really didn't have to do that. No, although I'm sure he was not making great money in the WWF. Between it being 1995 and the position he had fallen to on the card, I think he was just desperate for an opportunity. Yeah, I think it was just... Lex Luger's always been one of those kind of guys that's just, it's more important. The situation is more important than the money. And I, I think that that really shows through here. He just wanted to be where Sting was and actually enjoy his life. Yeah. And he ended up making millions out of it. Worked out great for him. Um, so, yeah, the first Nitro ends with uh, Hogan and Luger kind of facing off in the ring doing a promo, Luger challenging Hogan to put the title up against him uh, the next week on Nitro. So that's week two of Nitro is Hogan versus Luger for the title, which is pay-per-view main event on free TV, something that would become a Nitro signature. But just, you know, what a wake-up call for pro wrestling in 1995 to have a match like that on free TV. Like, Oh, God, yeah. Eric Bischoff is throwing your fucking rule book out the window. And I mean, I know that our podcast is one that I'm sure primarily caters to people who know a lot about classic wrestling and the like. But if you're somebody who doesn't, and you're somebody who started watching wrestling primarily in the last 10, 20 years, you might not know that wrestling television used to be boring as shit. Yeah. It used to just be like summaries of storyline video packages and squash matches. Even yeah. right up until this point, you didn't have to put anything good on television. You made them pay for that. This yeah, you get one good one good match a month on Raw if you were lucky. Yeah. And I mean and then Bischoff came along like, "Hey, what if we made our whole business a television business?" 
That's not what something if every show was a pay-per-view. Yeah, Vince didn't want that. He fought it for as long as he could because it's it's miserably difficult compared to what he had been doing. Now, and we see where they are now where they're trying to meet that expectation week by week and they really just can't do it. Yeah. And I mean, there was a lot less television to fill at this time, but all the same, it's still really tough when that's your primary thing. You have to provide awesome matches and interesting storylines on television and still make them pay for more. Yeah. Like, that's fucking hard. And that becomes something WCW suffers from in these couple of years to come. Even as, the, even as their business is doing great, their pay-per-view business was never as big as it should have been. And I think it was just because it was hard for the pay-per-views to ever be bigger than Nitro. Right. Like... And let's be clear, they put on some shit ass pay-per-views. Oh, yeah. I mean, but they're yeah, I mean, they're doing nitros from the Superdome in New Orleans, and then the pay-per-views are in Tupelo, Mississippi, in a five thousand seat arena. It was just a little bizarre. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but it was a television company. They were they cared about their TV product. Yep. Um so that Hogan-Luger match uh, ended in a no contest after a run-in from the Dungeon of Doom. Uh, Luger then agreed to join up with Hogan and Sting and Macho Man uh, for their War Games match at Fall Brawl against the Dungeon of Doom. Uh, you can guess who won that match. Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Hulk Hogan with a camel clutch. Is the Dungeon of Doom... Okay. Is this the point where we have to start talking about the Dungeon of Doom, or do you have a part later on where you want to start that? <laughs> no, let's talk about the Dungeon of Doom right now. Okay. Because the Dungeon of Doom, you would be hard-pressed to find a stupider, more ill-conceived, more undermined and not respected wrestling stable in the history of the art of professional wrestling ever. This was a stable of like a whole bunch of guys who were just weirdos who will just get squashed mercilessly again and again and again by Hulk Hogan. And that doesn't even get into the day-to-day -day segments of, like, Kevin Sullivan and, like, a room made out of styrofoam with a fog machine. <laughs> so will, will you tell the audience what exactly the Dungeon of Doom was? So the Dungeon of Doom is Kevin Sullivan, the Taskmaster. I mean, we know Kevin Sullivan's character is, you know, he's a man who lives on the dark side. He plays games, you know, the, the, the idea of, I think maybe there's a good idea here, but man, they've got some really shitty people in this stable. So it's like his collection of freaks. He's got, um, who's in there? He's got Ming, uh, the um, former Haku from the WF. Not bad. Good bodyguard. Um, the Zodiac or the butcher, uh, Bruce, the barber beefcake. Uh, not so great. Nope. He's got, <laughs> Uh, Kamala, who, you know, Kamala was pretty great in the 1980s. By 1995, not so great. Yeah, a lot of this is just where, if you're asking the question, where did all those guys Hogan beat in the 80s go? They joined the Dungeon of Doom. Yeah, we got uh, Earthquake, uh, John Tenta, uh, now the Shark. The shark. Um, we had Vader before he got fired, so Vader was good. Um Dragged down by being in this mess. Yep. Uh, Jimmy Hart's in there for some. He's not there yet. He will be after tonight. Jimmy Hart, weird fit, gotta say. Yep, definitely. Uh, later, we've got the Barbarian, uh, Big Bubba. I'm just reading Wikipedia now. 
Braun the Leprechaun? Who is that? What is, is that? What? Who is Braun the Leprechaun? Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. Oof. Yeah. I mean, Glacier, it's like the opposite Hugh of Morris. One like man the opposite gang. of the NWO, where only lame people are in there, and nobody wants to be part of it. Conan, Z Gangsta, Z Gangsta, the Ultimate Solution. That's a whole story unto itself. <laughs> Not going into that right now. No, that's a whole other thing. We'll cover that later. So yeah, that's the Dungeon of Doom. This is, it's hard to imagine a worse heel stable than this. And it's all presided over by old man Kevin Sullivan, wearing old school wrestling tights that you can see his whole dick and balls in with like some <laughs> weird... And it's like red with like racing lightning stripes up the side. Yeah. And it's he's got this weird makeup on to, over his eyebrows. Yeah, some crayon marks on his head. And like it's literally the least cool thing I can possibly imagine. And Would it even remotely surprise you to learn that Kevin Sullivan is the booker? Yes. He is in charge of booking this. And so this is his baby. This is his dream. His dream heel stable is a stable run by him full of all of his demonic freaks. And, uh, guys, I just can't put to you enough how much trouble your company in when Kevin Sullivan is your top heel. It's a ter If you're outside of 1979 Florida, that's not a great fit for you. And he's in every fucking segment, cutting horrible, <laughs> lengthy promos about the devil and how he's incredible. And then they bring in the master. Who was yeah. even more mysterious and magical. Yeah, so the master is King Curtis Iakea in a very heavy makeup. And he looks like he's made of stone. And he just like says things like, Sullivan, my son. And like more importantly, they never explain long fucking promos. Oh my endlessly long. Like to the extent that if you were in these crowds, like you would just leave. Like, <laughs> We're yeah, talking like I'm done. twenty minute promos about how they need to kill Hulkamania. And I just Yeah. <sighs> These they, segments include gems where like Hogan is transported into a cave and like he touches the run in water and yells, It's not hot. <laughs> There's one where Hogan is wearing a mask and he talks about how he's been to the, and he has a sword and he's talking about going to the dark side brother. And like, this is legitimately some of the worst wrestling ever produced. How, that, how, how did Kevin Sullivan not get fired for this? That is an amazing question. And like ostensibly the magic with Kevin Sullivan is that he builds heat. That's his magical touch. He's amazing at that. There is no heat on the Dungeon of Doom no at heat. all. Because they never win. Heat. They just lose to Hogan every time. Um, so on the way into this, the Giant has debuted. Uh, the Giant, Paul White, the big show. They're billing him as the son of Andre the Giant, which I'm sure Andre's family uh, was not super thrilled about. 
and by the way, this is not just some casual thing that they're doing, like, oh, hey, he's the son of Andre the Giant, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, no, no. They're having Bobby Heenan claim to, like, have seen him be raised by Andre because he was a part of Andre's life. Like, they're they're going deep with this. Yeah. It's like he is taking revenge for his father, Andre. And the other thing to mention is that we're at this weird time in WCW where we've made fun of many times all like the cinematic period where they were just throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars of videos of them like sailing on the beach playing volleyball and shit like that. This is a similar time, but they've just, for whatever reason, the direction they've taken is so kayfabe that it's ridiculous. Like the whole Dungeon of Doom. Yeah, the Dungeon of Doom is the most kayfabe thing that has ever existed in wrestling. And the fact that it immediately precedes the NWO is maybe the most incredible thing. No, and that's the thing, is Bischoff is figuring out what they need to do. Like, going in this more realistic direction is the right call. And somehow in the middle of this, we have the Dungeon of Doom. Yeah, and it's important to mention that Bischoff's not really in charge of creative at this point. Like, that's not really his job. Like, that doesn't really start to, like, 96. So he's just At least if you listen to him tell the story. Yeah. I mean, so if that's the case, then this is just Sullivan fucking everything up while Bischoff realizes what they need to do. That's that's sort of how he frames it. And it does make sense because they take a drastic left turn about a year from here. Yeah. Um... So what's been going on? Hogan's been teasing a heel turn. Uh, He got his neck injured by the giant. Uh, Then he started wearing all black. He talked about turning to the dark side. Uh, The giant and Kevin Sullivan uh, shaved Hogan's mustache. (laughs) (laughs) Like, dude. It never occurred to me how ridiculous Hulk Hogan looks without his mustache until they <laughs> shaved it. It was like, oh my God, you need like, that. Welcome man. to 1975 Mid South Wrestling. Yes. Who does I this think, crap anymore? It's like, we're going to get some heat. Come back with a hair match. And like, <sighs> and here's the thing the Giant, I can't blame them for pushing him this hard. Because he appears to be the solution to their we need a Hulk Hogan killer problem. Like he's so talented, but so green. He's incredibly green, but he's huge and he's got a great look and he's super athletic. Yeah. Yeah. And he kind of so gets were, it right off the bat. Yeah, they were training him in the power plant and they just saw the money and couldn't resist. He's probably two years from being ready to have TV matches, but um, tonight he makes his televised debut in a pay-per-view main event. And they understand. Let's give them credit for this. They understand that they can't just put him out there and have a match. Like it's just, it would just be the shits. Like everyone would just shit on it immediately. So they have to put, do something with it to make it different. What they choose to do is one of the most insane things anyone has ever done ever. Yeah, they're gonna have a monster truck match on a the top of Kobo Arena. What the fuck? Monster trucks, monster man. Eric Bischoff is such a redneck. He really is. Eric Bischoff, despite being from like Detroit. And Minnesota is the biggest redneck on the planet. Yeah, he absolutely is. 
He's just like, oh yeah, we're gonna co-brand with Monster Trucks. Yeah, we'll put Hulk Hogan. Monster Trucks are cool. I mean, look, I loved Monster Trucks. I used to watch like the Monster Truck Jam. It came on like right after wrestling on Saturday morning, so I loved that shit. But let's I be clear. I kind of like Monster Trucks too. Yeah, Monster Trucks are fucking rad. But that doesn't mean it's a great branding opportunity. Or that immediately before their title match, they should have Hulk Hogan and the Giant get into monster trucks and sumo wrestle with them. And of course, there have to be motorcycles involved too. Uh, Giant ran over Hogan's treasure Harley Davidson motorcycle with his monster truck to set this up. Which, I mean, there have been a lot of occasions of people running over other people's vehicles in wrestling history that were super cool. Not one of those times. (laughs) No, anytime Steve Austin did it, it was awesome. Unfortunately, the giant, not Steve Austin. No, not quite. Um, so the big go-home tease to this. On Nitro, there was a giant block of ice at the top of the ramp. Yes. And the master policy. Played, yeah, that... Yeah, the beast was coming. The beast would be here. Believe it or not, at the end of the show, when lightning struck this block of ice and it split open, the crowd went ape shit. I promise you, I've seen the nitro. Crowd popped huge for this block of ice opening up. And who came up out of it? The Yeti! The Yeti! Who was a mummy for some reason. Now, Kyush, do you know what a Yeti is? I am aware of what a Yeti is, yes. It's a, it's a Bigfoot, a Sasquatch, a big hairy monster. The abominable snowman, absolutely. Yeah. One, it's pronounced Yeti, not Yeti. Okay, but here's the thing. that pe- Other people on the broadcast called him the Yeti. But Tony Schiavone stubbornly refused to refer to him as anything other than the Yeti. (laughs) Despite being confronted with the truth, he flatly refused. And why is it a mummy? Okay, see, now, who was the Yeti supposed to be? Giant Gonzalez. I mean, first of all, that's where we're at. Giant Gonzalez is who's going to join this stable. Hogan's going to get that feud with Giant Gonzalez. He never got to do. Tell you what, brother, if me and Giant Gonzalez had gotten to work together, WBF never would have gone downhill. I like to imagine Hulk Hogan sitting backstage at WrestleMania 9, watching Undertaker Giant Gonzalez and being like, I tell you, brother, I could have drawn somebody. his fucking mustache. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Despite yeah, the fact that it was him. the worst fucking match in history and a horrible bomb, he was like, I don't know, brother. I could draw money with that. Yeah, but like Giant Gonzalez was, yeah, like a Sasquatch type character. He was a big giant ape. I mean, look, the, the Yete is a horrible idea, but it's one of those things that, fine, whatever. We can get make do with it. But it's not Giant Gonzalez. It is Ron Reese. In a mummy costume. It, you got to assume that they weren't going to put Giant Gonzalez in a mummy costume, right? I wouldn't think so. Because I don't would... know why they put Ron Reese in a mummy costume. Just have him grow a beard and like give him a furry costume. And Okay, so that's the crux of this. Is that the Yete is the insurance policy that's going to make sure that the Giant wins the world title. 
Which, I mean, sure. Yeah, great. It's no weirder than any other popping out of a coffin or whatever, popping out of a box thing that Jim Cornette loves so much. I don't know. If if you come out of a block of ice, are you automatically over? Apparently he was. Yeah, believe it or not, this is proof of Jim Cornette's theory that if you come out of a box, you're automatically over. And I mean, there's psychological sense to that. Like People are like, gee, I wonder what the fuck is in that box. Even if it's not anything that's actually good, you'll still be like, oh shit, what is that? Oh, that's crazy. At least you'll wonder. And that'll buy you like at least 15 minutes of people not changing the channel. (laughs) Yeah. So that's where we are. (laughs) So we get to the show. Sunday, October 29th, 1995. Uh, We are at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. That was interesting that they were at Joe Louis since it seemed like WCW always ran the palace. Yeah, that's what I always thought. I don't know if this was when WWE didn't have a deal with Joe Louis, which I think that they always did after this. So maybe WWE was running the palace at the time? The only time I remember WWE doing the palace was um, SummerSlam 93. They may have done some house shows there, too, but that was the only pay-per-view. Yeah, it seems like WWE always did Joe Lewis and WCW always did the Palace. And the years after this, WCW was always at the Palace when they were in Detroit. Which, I mean, to be honest, if you've never been to any of these arenas, the Palace is a much better place. Yeah, Mm. Joe Lewis Arena. It's a shithole. shithole. It is. (laughs) Great for hockey and drinking stale beer, if that's what you're into. Yeah, it's one of those places that has a great ambiance, but you wouldn't want to go there with your family. You know what I'm saying? No. no. Whereas, you know, the Palace is out in Auburn Hills and a nice suburb, nice restaurants and malls all around it, and much nicer, more modern building. Absolutely. So about 13,000 in attendance with 8,000 paid, so heavily papered, but a good crowd on hand. Yeah, it seems like a good crowd, too. They're reacting to stuff. Like, they're not, despite the fact that this is one of the shittiest wrestling products I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, they were, they they were, are, they're into it. Um, the uh, buy rate is about a 0.6 for 120,000 buys. That's not great. Uh, it's down from 210,000 the year before uh, for the Flair Hogan retirement match. But up from 100,000 in 1993 before they had Hogan. So still a little bit of progress, but I don't think this is what they were hoping for here. No, and you got to imagine that when they first brought Hogan in, they thought that they were going to have sort of sustainable growth, regardless of what Bischoff might say on the subject. I think inarguably the amount of money they spent on him, they had to think that they were going to get it. And like that's not at all what's happening here. It's bad times. No, with Hogan versus the Giant, they had to be thinking we're going to crack 200,000 buys. But, I mean, this is a point at which nothing they're doing is really moving the needle. And it's to the point where, like, when the NWO eventually does come along, it takes a long time for the numbers to be reflected. Because when your business hits such a down period where people just don't give a shit anymore, it takes them a long time to come back. Because they're just not checking on your product anymore. They've just decided it's not part of their lives. It's not part of their kind of circle of pop culture. And that's kind of where WWE is now. Like, to a certain extent, like, it's hard to get those old wrestling fans back because they're just not thinking about it anymore. 
Um, on commentary, we've got Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan, and that's it, which is a little weird because I always think of WCW in this era as doing three-man teams, but no Dusty Rhodes, no Mongo, no Mike Tanay. Yeah, Bischoff comes out just to do commentary for the Monster Truck match. Christ, yes. Which I like to believe that's because Shivani was like, Eric, I don't know what the fuck to say I about this. this. Yeah, I just can't. <laughs> I'm a genuine broadcaster, please. Fine, Shivani, go spend some time with your fucking family. <laughs> Lose the fucking weight while you're at it. And I can't wait until we get to that. Because one of my favorite parts of that whole segment is how Tony Schiavone responds to everything that goes on in it. And we'll get to that, but it's truly beautiful. All right. So the dark matches, I think these were probably, these probably aired on uh, WCW main event. We had Eddie Guerrero beating Disco Inferno. Kind of would have liked to see that. Yeah, actually. why didn't we get to see that? That would have been the best match on this show. <laughs> Uh, Paul Orndorff defeated the Renegade. Oh, no. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated Steven Regal and Earl Robert Eaton. That sounds awesome. Holy shit. Look at all this crap yes. we missed out on. Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko against Steven Regal and Bobby Eaton. I'm there somebody, for that. Somebody died in that match. <laughs> And then Craig Pittman against VK Wall Street, who was Mike Rotunda. Yeah, I'm fine with not seeing that one. No, I can live with that. Opening package is uh, animated with haunted houses and ghosts. It's all about the uh, Hogan giant view. And then we get Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan welcoming us to the show. Uh, we see clips of the monster trucks, which are across the street on top of Kobo Arena. And then Shivani reveals to us that on the pre-show, Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman attacked Ric Flair, who was supposed to team uh, with Sting on this night, but his status would then be in doubt. Could this be a setup? I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing Ric Flair would do, but no, Ric Flair had just turned babyface, guys. Yeah, he would never turn on his good friend Sting. Oh my God, Sting, you you sweet beautiful idiot. Sting, the dumbest man in wrestling. Is this dumber than uh, the Halloween Havoc we did, where Dustin Rhodes teamed up with Arn Anderson? See, that was dumber because the Four Horsemen had actually been dumb. broken up for a while. <laughs> yeah, and he wasn't expecting Arn Anderson to actively attack Ric Flair. So, like, it made more sense, right? Yeah. This is just, okay, my arch rival of my entire career, Ric Flair, I'll trust you to go up against your best friends and be on my side. Sting, that beautiful, beautiful soul. This happens to Sting so often during oh, the 90s. such an idiot. But, like, that's... Did he ever get I don't think so. Here's the beautiful thing TNA, about TNA. TNA, he knew Hogan was bad news. Yeah, that was actually the beautiful thing about Sting during this period is that every, this happens to him at least twice a year where somebody betrays him and he doesn't see it coming. Meanwhile, Lex Luger 
is constantly suspected of being about to turn on his friends. That's that literally follows him from like 1990 WWE or WCW to WWE back to WCW. That is his entire storyline, his whole career. Yes. The entire crux of the Sting Crow character is the fact that both of those things were true at the same time. So everybody thought the wrong person was turning. That's the genius of it. And so like people now may not remember those two things, but like that that's that's the crux of both of those characters. That's what powers it. And so that's how. Yeah. Lex is the one person who didn't turn on Stan. Even though everyone on earth thought he was going to. <laughs> of course. But yeah, that's the genius is that every, Lex Luger always turns, but not on Sting. <laughs> and Sting always gets betrayed, but not by Lex. So opening match for the WCW World Television Championship, we've got Diamond Dallas Page defending against Johnny B. Bad. Uh, Johnny B. Bad was supposed to have a U.S. title match against Sting on Saturday night, but he didn't show up for the match. Uh, when he finally got to the arena, he revealed that he had car trouble, a flat tire. DDP then came out to make fun of him and... DDP's bodyguard, Max Muscle, said something about Bad having four flat tires. This revealed that DDP was, in fact, the man behind the flat tires, as Bad had only said he had one flat tire. Which is revealed by Johnny B. Bad in the most overacted line ever delivered on camera. (laughs) And, like, there's no storyline reason for Diamond Dallas Page and his bodyguard to slash... Johnny B. Bad's tires at all. I guess they were just jealous that he was getting the U.S. title match against Sting. But Paige already has a title. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> DDP's out first with both his bodyguard, Max Muscle, and uh, Kimberly, the Diamond Doll. DDP in full douchebag mode here. Yeah. Famously, somebody along the line, and I don't remember who it is, is going to tell De- Paige... You need to lose, like, five of your gimmicks. <laughs> yeah, he's coming out here with, like, cigar, vest, gold chains, sunglasses, two managers, like... He's wearing, like, a full-body singlet with diamonds all over it, including a diamond asshole. <laughs> <laughs> like, he looks the stupidest a person has ever looked. Like, he just... It's I think a it's mess. a good heel gimmick, though. I mean, but it's a mid-card heel gimmick. Yeah, like, yeah this he's never becoming anywhere. a star doing all this. Yeah, he just, it's it's preposterous. And he's greener than shit. Like, he's this been is, wrestling for, what, like a yeah. year? He's like The Miz when The Miz was coming out with, like, the bowler's hat and the gloves and the wristbands. Oh, the chick magnet Miz, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. You need <laughs> Again, to same thing with The Miz. The Miz cut down on the gimmicks and got way better. And, I mean, that's what happens. You just got to find the one thing that works for you and then just put everything into that. And there's actually a lot of corollaries between those two people now that I think about it. Um, so, yeah. Um, Johnny B. Bad's music starts to play. He doesn't come out. Did somebody come out dressed as him? Yeah, wearing, like, a big robe. It kind of looked like Savage, but there's no way it was Savage. No. Yeah, I don't know who it was. Yeah, they never reveal who it is. 
and then, and then Johnny B. Bad sneaks in through the crowd and attacks Paige. This match goes for 17 minutes for that point. Can you remember off the top of your head one thing that happened during it? No. 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 <laughs> Nothing's jumping out at me. It was a match. They wrestled for a really long time. Of any two guys you're going to put in a really long match, DDP and Mark Miro, especially, D I mean, DDP at this point in his career would not be high on my list. Let's say DDP is care is doing, like, assumedly is carrying this match, which is ridiculous because he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. Like, it's a perfectly competent match. Don't get me wrong. Like, Johnny B. Bad is not bad. Like, he's a perfectly fine carryable wrestler at this point who's charismatic enough that the fans get into his matches. Like I can see why they foul money in him. Like he's, there's nothing wrong with this. It just got way too much time. Yeah. And if you think this was too long, how about the month before fall brawl where the opening match was Johnny B bad versus Brian Pillman. And they got 30 minutes, 30 fucking minutes. Yeah. That means that there were people in this company that thought that Johnny B. Bad was a worker. Like, yeah. for real, was like a He's good He's our workhorse. He's our Dolph Ziggler. That is insane. <laughs> and tells you pretty much everything that you need to know. Because this is a company that has Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, William Regal. It has so many people in it. And they're like, no, no, we need a great match. You put Johnny B. Bad out there. <laughs> Better call Johnny. Better call Johnny. Makes a good match bad. <laughs> they, they wrestle forever. I didn't think it was a bad match. No, Crowd got fine. into it towards the end. Um, finish comes when Max Muscle accidentally clotheslines Page. Bad covers him and gets the pin. Wins the title. Big pop for that. Big pop. Yeah, Johnny B. Bad was over. Like, there's no question about it. He was. Yeah, um, Miro's only with WCW for about another six months. His contract comes up and. Um, you know, Vince McMahon was very into Johnny B. Bad, saw the potential of all the merchandising, so signs him away with a nice uh, guaranteed contract that he never lived up to. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like, we've talked about before on other shows. Like, I see what Vince saw in Johnny oh, B. Yeah. Bad. Johnny B. Bad's good. Mark Miro sucks. Yeah, that's the problem, is that Mark Miro was not Johnny B. Bad. Johnny B. Bad is a gimmick, and you don't he own it. couldn't play the Johnny B. Bad gimmick in the WWF. Also, Johnny B. Bad, a racist gimmick. Let's just be clear about that. Really racist. An Italian man is portraying a black man. That's not okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he's... I don't think he's... Well, he's wearing, like, mascara. I don't think he's wearing, like, makeup. I think he's just, like, sleeping in the tanning bed. Yeah. And, like, literally the song says he looks like Little Richard. <laughs> yeah, the lyrics are hilarious. Like, I don't remember, but it, yeah, I don't remember what the opening lyric is, but the second lyric is he looks just like Little Richard. <laughs> Way to be right on the fucking nose, Jimmy Hart. It was a Dusty Rhodes idea. Of course it was. Guy, he looked just like Little Richard. And it's the exact same concept that will lead us to Arabian Muhammad Hassan from Italy. <laughs> It's a proud wrestling tradition. It sure is. The worst one. Second match, we've got the Zodiac versus Randy Savage. The Zodiac being Brutus Beefcake with his face painted white. Yes, farting noise. We, That's what I think of this. Dude, uh, 
if you've never listened to our show before, you might not know this, but I don't look at the cards before we watch these shows. Oh, I, I want to be surprised when people's music hits, okay? There were no good surprises on this show. When the Zodiac's music hits, I was in stunned silence. Like, no, I don't have to watch a Zodiac match, do Did I? Did you recognize that music? That's yes. Ray Mysterio's music. Well, that's what I was saying. It's like I heard Mysterio's music, and I was like, oh, my God, it's Mysterio. This is Mysterio so versus Randy Savage. That I literally was like, oh, my God, this is the best thing of all time. And then the Zodiac comes out, and I'm like, that's the opposite of Ray Mysterio. Yeah. This was going to be Randy Savage versus Kamala. I've heard that Kamala quit WCW because he didn't want to do a job to Savage, which just sounds too ridiculous to be true, right? I meant to say, it's Savage. Like, pro- without a doubt, really the second biggest guy in the company, right? Like, you you really got a problem with that? Like, I just, it's hard to think of, there are very few people in wrestling, I can imagine, fewer people having a problem putting over than Randy Savage. Like even Hogan, you can imagine some guys being like, but he can't work. But like Randy Savage, one of the most respected wrestlers in wrestling and one of the biggest stars. And willing to give you anything in a match. Like how could anybody not be willing to put over Randy Savage? Maybe it was more that Kamala didn't want to do a job in one minute and 30 seconds. (laughs) Probably fair. Thank God they didn't try to go along with this match. Yeah, this well, that, is over. That was my concern. concern as I was like, so is this a 20-minute match? Because I will turn this shit oh. off. <laughs> the first time you ever would just refuse to finish a show. I had to say, okay, it's just going to be Steve from this point on because fuck this. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jesus. I mean, there's nothing to even say about it. I mean, it's just Zodiac comes out, Savage eats him alive, elbow drop, done. Moving on. Savage has a torn tricep. That's the other reason this match had to be short. Well, okay, what's going on with the storyline, though? Because the idea is that Savage has to win his match. Oh, God. And Luger has uh, to win his match, and then they're going to fight? But why? Because they're both baby faces here. I am pulling this from my vague memory of watching these Nitros a couple of years ago. I'm pretty sure Sting like got in the middle of Savage and Luger getting into it. And proposed that if they both won their matches at Halloween Havoc, they should have to wrestle each other. Why? I have no idea. And I just love the idea that, like, let's say the Zodiac beats Randy Savage and Luger wins his match. Then Luger's just like, well, all right, I guess that's it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. All right, no more matches. I'll just go home then. Yeah, I don't know why Sting was being a dick here. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And they don't make any mention of it on this broadcast at all. Not once. Yeah, good luck trying to understand what's going on here if you haven't seen the TV leading into it. And WCW is historically bad about that. It's yeah. just like, we're a television product. We If you didn't watch our TV, there's no fucking way you're watching this pay-per-view. It's just one of those things that's like so fundamental to me that you should explain what's going on and what the stakes of the match are and why these guys are going to wrestle twice tonight, they don't bother to do it. If anything, like, that's one of the things that WWE does so well. And, like, especially in their longer shows like WrestleMania and stuff like that, is, like, it's hard to remember everything that's on that card or why you're supposed to care about any of it. So they do those, like, elaborate video packages and productions, and they explain it all very thoroughly. So that, like, whatever whatever you're feeling about that storyline, you can recapture it right before the match starts. 
That's very important. WCW never invests a cent in that. Not one. No. Um, the highlight of this match is a fan gets in the ring and the referee takes him down. That was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, Savage goes over in 90 seconds with an elbow drop. Didn't want this Thank to be God. any longer than it was. Thank God. Just Let's just move on. <laughs> Uh, we then go to Mean Gene Schilling for the hotline. He teases he heard Jimmy Hart talking to someone he used to represent in a different organization. Who the hell would that be? I mean, Jimmy Hart has at some point represented everyone on Earth, right? Yeah, not Lex Luger off the top of my head, right? No, is it someone in the dungeon? Did he manage earthquake? Could be earthquake. Yeah, earthquake. Boss man. Yeah, I mean that's the thing is yeah they've got so many ex WWF guys that yeah it could be any of them. So does anybody come in after this? Because no. like is, is this about the time that they're talking to Brett or is that way later? They talking to Brett. That's the summer of ninety six. Okay, so yeah, that's way later. Yeah. They wouldn't be putting Bret Hart with Jimmy Hart. <laughs> no, they put Hogan with Jimmy Hart. They got the same name, man. Come on. Yeah. Uh, then he interviews Johnny B. Bad, and then they show a clip of Hawk getting his arm broken by Kurosawa on the Clash of the Champions. Explain who Kurosawa is. Okay. Kurosawa is Manabu Nakanishi. Uh, he was just kind of a new Japan guy. He had had a, uh, he was kind of one of those, uh, what fucking sport did he participate in? Blah, 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 blah. Uh, he was, he was an amateur wrestler, but he was like a a world class quality. Like obviously a lot of the wrestlers who wrestled for new Japan in the nineties had been from legitimate fighting backgrounds. Like Justin Liger, most people don't know was almost an Olympic wrestler. Like there's a lot of stuff like that. So he was just one of those guys. Like, he's a huge dude. Uh, later on, he'll win the IWGP title. But, like, it was kind of a uh, congratulations on being around for 20 years without fucking your body falling apart kind of thing. Like, he's he's a fan favorite now. It's just, like, an old guy who hung around. There's really He didn't have a particularly interesting career. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, this is just his excursion from New Japan. Like, he was a young boy then he got sent over here to do this for a little while he's only around for like a couple of months no i mean yeah he's just on loan from new japan as part of their talent sharing agreement and part of that deal is their guys go over so uh he beats hawk in three minutes with a samoan drop with his feet on the ropes um this is the last I remember seeing Hawk in WSW for a while. Um, they br- they bring him and Animal back sometime in 96, and they have a few months run. But, yeah, Hawk uh, leaves for Japan for a while after this. The only interesting thing that comes of any of this is, I guess, from his time working with Hawk, he learns the Road Warrior workout, which is like a really famous like bodybuilding power lifter workout. And then he'll go on to teach that to Kenta Kobashi and Kensuke Sasaki. Like, literally, he brings the Road Warrior workout to Japan, and, like, it creates a new generation of bodybuilders. That's really the only thing that comes from this. This is really weird. Yeah, it really is. And it doesn't – it never explains shit about this, of course. Except that – and, of course – 
how many shows do we have to watch where Colonel Robert Parker has bought a person of a different race than <laughs> a himself? Color. Yeah. Um, all, all WCW shows. I mean, it's how did this go on for so long? Do you think he's still doing this in MLW today? God, I hope not. Because I, I hope not. I've really like I'd like to start watching MLW. It's a product <laughs> that I'd like to support. And if I see that motherfucker just purchasing people of other ethnicities <laughs> and putting them in the ring, I'm turning that shit off with prejudice. Yeah, they can adopt some elements of WCW, like the war games, the spin the wheel, make the deal, but not that. And so you don't have to take it all. Um, then Mean Gene interviews Savage, who is crazier than usual. This is a famous interview. He tells Gene his mustache is crooked, and Gene yes. replies that Savage's beard is a little sideways. Literally, like, I usually watch these shows with my wife in the room, just kind of in the background. She's not interested in 90s WCW at all. But so she very rarely faces. Yeah, she very rarely pays attention to this. But when Savage stops mid-promo to go, your mustache is crooked, bursts out laughing on the floor. That's a legendary moment. Uh, Savage says he could beat Hogan and that he'll beat Luger tonight. I do like that they're sort of teasing all the baby faces are going to fight each other, even if it never actually happens. Well, that's really what this show is, is every single baby face on this show is – sort of teasing that they might turn heel all of them yeah. so we and could be there. building towards like a four-way at starcade with hogan savage luger and sting that sounds cool that would have been out. yeah that is not what happens no do you know what does happen at the starcade no i have no idea the world cup of wrestling wcw versus new japan what that's this one yeah Oh no! Yeah, is that as trash as I think it is? It's pretty trash. We oh. might have to we might have to review it this December. Oh man, I've never seen that show and it's terrifying. Yeah. Then, on a show of strange things, we have one of the only good weird ones: Sabu in WCW against Jerry Lynn. Okay, but it's not Jerry Lynn. No, it's Mr. JL, which is Jerry Lynn, like in a luchador costume with a mask on. But still, Sabu versus Jerry Lynn on a WCW show. And here's the thing. They're pushing Sabu. Yeah. Like, the announcers are, like, way into him. They're talking about him on other segments. Like, in Shivani's sign-off at the end of the night, he's just like, so many wonderful things happen with huge stars like Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, and Sabu. And I'm like, whoa, all yeah. right, I guess we're pushing Sabu. They know they've got something here, and they do. Like, this is peak Sabu. He's not fucking up. Everything's electric. The fans are, like, oohing and on at everything yeah. he does. He's in Detroit with the Sheik managing him, which is awesome. Yeah, and Dude, it is pretty takes cool. a bump here. A big bump, too. Yeah, Sabu doesn't assign you mood salt. I don't think he was supposed to hit Sheik, but he takes him down with Jerry. Well, Sheik runs into the moon salt. Jesus Christ. So Sheik I think he thought like, Sabu was going to miss, so he's just like, fuck it, I'll catch him. Yeah, Sheik was like 70 at this point, and it just had a heart attack. What a badass. Yeah, he was. But I mean, um, one of the biggest what ifs from this era, and I mean, like, there's a ton of that kind of thing that we can do. 
But Sabu could have stayed. Yeah. Like if Heyman doesn't offer him way more money to come back, he yeah. How much of that money did he ever actually see? Yeah, and and I'm sure, and 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 I'm sure that he was loyal to ECW in a way that he wasn't necessarily here. But by the time he goes back, Sabu's never really the focus of that company again. He could have stayed here, and he would have been a big deal. Yeah, because Bischoff is looking for different. He is looking for action. He's looking for Crash TV. Like Sabu is what he is looking for. And like Sabu is big enough that he wouldn't have gotten pigeonholed in the cruiserweight division necessarily. This is a time where they're looking for stars. I, I don't I'm not saying Sabu would have been a world champion or anything, but he would have been he probably would have had Ravens role, like somewhere in there. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. And yeah, I think he would have gotten a nice push here. But this is really it for him in WCW. He ends up um getting a good offer from Heyman and going back to ECW. Um, but he's part of a big influx of talent here as they're going to Monday nights. They raid ECW. They sign Sabu, uh, Benoit, Malenko, Guerrero, Mysterio, uh, Psychosis, Conan. Um, I'm missing some guys. There's some story about almost signing Al Snow and like, Terry Taylor vetoing it for some reason, but yeah, um, yeah, part of an influx of ECW talent, and you know, all guys who can work is what they're bringing in here. Yeah, and I mean that that's another classic. What if is what if they don't do that? What does ECW look like later on if they oh. actually have horses? I mean, then that's another great question for another time. But what it creates is just all the fresh guys can work. And it creates this amazing undercard of just nothing but great workers from top to bottom. And I guess the ECW-WWF working agreement doesn't come together until after this, which WCW getting all of these guys was probably part of the motivation for both sides in that deal. Oh, yeah. I'm sure Vince was like, well, what the fuck? All the good indie talent all just went to the same company. I better do something about that. Yeah, and Heyman lost all his guys and didn't get any compensation for it. Yeah, so they kind of fixed that after that, which I'm sure Vince kicked himself for years after that that he had. I mean, eventually he winds up with all those guys anyway, so maybe not. Who cares? Yeah, although they could have had Benoit back before this, and they weren't interested. Oh, yeah. he what Didn't he try to come over after he won the, the Super J Cup when he yeah. was a Pegasus kid? Yeah, he, he had a tryout match, and... They weren't into it. They weren't into him for size. I'm sure Vince just said too small, but they needed talent at that point. And I mean, that's a God. We could have had some like fucking Benoit versus the Hart family shit or yeah. Hart Foundation with Benoit in it. Benoit teaming with Davy Boy is the new British Bulldogs. Man, dude. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah, he would have done some good stuff. All right, we're getting way too far into the realm of what make believe right now. Because yeah. It's so tempting to do that. So Sabu wins this match uh, with a springboard moonsault, and then, he, then she hits JL with a fireball to add insult to injury. Which they do not get a camera angle on at all. Nope. And you know what? Let's just pour one out real quick for Jerry Lynn, who got the reverse Mysterio. Mysterio, who got unmasked because he was too pretty to be under a mask. Eric Bischoff takes one look at Jerry Lynn and say, hey, you know what you should be? A luchador. <laughs> Jerry I'm Lynn is not a luchador. I'm surprised I never, never did that to Christian. 
<laughs> that would have been hilarious. Hey, you know that conquistador thing? We're just doing that from now on. Stick with that. That's a better look for you. But Jerry Lynn's so style is not very much not lucha libre at all. So, like, this is sort of a weird fit, and it doesn't last very long. But, hey, man, this is pretty fun. Um, at the top of the ramp, we get a promo from King Curtis Iakea, a.k.a. The Master. He oh, talks is... for a long time. This is brutal. And, like, look, this is what it is. He's, like, out on some kind of throne. He's got, like, a blue light on him. He looks like he's made of stone or ice or whatever. There's, like, a big billowing fog machine. And he just goes on and on about how Kevin Sullivan is his son and they're going to destroy Hulkamania. And goofy-looking Kevin Sullivan's just standing there on the side. And genuinely in my heart, I know that even if when I was eight years old, I wouldn't have found any of this fucking scary. I don't I don't get what this was. It's not understanding the difference between making a movie and making a wrestling show. Yeah. Like, I love Halloween stuff. I love demons. I love ghosts, horror movies haunted houses just doesn't work in wrestling like wrestling is best as elevated reality right like when you get into the realm of the hokey it gets real hard to suspend your disbelief and like you know there are examples where it's worked you know the undertaker right is most of that list is the thing and that's what one of the things that's so special about the undertaker is that that gimmick should not have worked there's nothing in the history of wrestling that suggests that anything like that could work. It's just that one time it did. Yeah. So that's sort of, I think, the justification for trying so many of these storylines that will ultimately fail as well. The Undertaker worked. Ugh. Mark Calloway, once-in-a-lifetime performer. Exactly. And Paul Bear. Yeah, and Glenn Jacobs, for that matter. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it, it didn't need to work that well, and with other people it wouldn't have. Yeah, and for every Undertaker, Kane, Goldust, Bray Wyatt, there's a whole lot of Dungeon of Dooms. Yeah, holy shit. Then Mean Gene interviews Hulk Hogan, who talks about the Harley Davidson giveaway contest they're running. Dude, this is the most boring segment in wrestling history. <laughs> Some dude named Maniac Mike won. Literally, Hulk Hogan spends... 15 fucking minutes giving this guy a Harley Davidson. They they literally do a commercial for the guy, local guy who sells the Harley Davidsons with the lady who fixes up the Harley Davidson with this dude's wife who does not want to be on camera at all no. with maniac Mike himself with Hogan talking for 10 minutes about how much he likes Harley Davidsons. What are we doing here? And this I, is supposed to be evil Hogan. I just it's completely out of character for the rest of the event. And it's just bizarre, guys. Like I don't even know what to say about it. It took me three tries to get through the whole segment. Like it's just long. And it's a commercial for a local motorcycle like salesman. I don't I've never seen anything like this on like wrestling television. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not great. No. Like and then, it, is this the guy who gave them the monster trucks? Is that why they're doing this? It could be. Oh, whatever. 
Who cares? No, maybe, this is... Or maybe Bischoff thought his wife was hot. <laughs> Next up, on a show full of shitty matches, we have the very worst. Lex Luger versus Ming for 15 minutes. Now, Ugh. Ming is one of the most respectable people in the wrestling industry. He's a true badass through and through. He's never been an awesome worker, per se. But he's not horrible. But this match is the shit. <laughs> 15 minutes of this garbage. What and are we it's thinking? Just, it's just 15 minutes of clubbing blows. Like, it doesn't... And the problem is, too, is that everyone's so sure that Luger's turning heel that, like, the fans are not cheering for him at all. So, yeah. like, there's no, there's no heat on this at all. Nobody likes Lex Luger. He's a dick. Yeah. He should have just come into WCW as a heel. Yeah. Only much later on when the NWO are way bigger dicks than him will he truly yeah. turn baby. And he's the only guy who can beat them. Right. So this match, as I said, goes nearly 15 minutes. Ming hits Luger with his golden spike and has him pinned. But Kevin Sullivan, Ming's manager, runs in to break up the pin right in front of the referee for a disqualification. <laughs> which I can surmise is because he wanted Luger to have to wrestle Savage, I guess. Okay, but if we know what we know later which I have to assume was already a done deal at the time. You would hope so. Why would he want that to happen? <laughs> Nothing about this makes sense. And the announcers are even saying like, oh, uh, we don't really know which one of these two Kevin Sullivan is managing. Um, yeah, we do. What are you talking about? He's managing Ming. But he fucks Ming. <laughs> he fucks him over horribly. Yeah, because he wanted... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just it's trash. Like none of this makes sense at all. Then Mean Gene interviews the giant, who I love when they do this. He's clearly standing on a box, so he looks like he's eight feet tall here. He takes the microphone out of Gene's hand, and Gene spends the rest of the entire promo just like reaching for like a little small child trying to get something off the top shelf. <laughs> Then we've got Arn Anderson and Brian Pillman against Sting and Ric Flair. Um, so Flair and Arn have been feuding. Arn, you know, is tired of always, you know, watching Flair's back. He feels like Flair has watched a, you know, lost a step. Is maybe not the man anymore. And you know, Arn is feeling like his time to step out of Flair's shadow and in, into the spotlight. They had an awesome match at Fall Brawl. A month before this, which if you've never seen, you should definitely check out. Yeah, and that's a super compelling storyline too. That's just sort of like WCW history in a nutshell. Is the the idea of Arn Anderson becoming his own man and like a yeah. potential world champion is awesome and it something is. they really could have run with. And it's just like I've been your lackey forever. Like you were only the champion because I watched your back. Like all kinds of good stuff you can do with that. Like, they should have built Arn up for Hogan. Like, that that's something they could have done. Arn winning the title as a babyface would have been awesome. 
Oh, it would have been if he had done that anywhere in the south, the roof would have come off the place. Oh, what a moment that would have been. Um, you know, unfortunately, he has his neck problems and is pretty much done about a year after this. Right. Like it really should have happened during the early '90s period, but there was just nobody. That was when he had his opportunity. <laughs> um. So Sting comes out alone because Flair is hurt. Um. Sting actually dominates the first couple minutes of the match. After about five minutes, Flair comes down in street clothes. He's all kinds of fired up, but the referee forces him to the apron. Ric Flair works the apron here so phenomenally. Oh, God. He, like, tears his shirt off and throws it at Arn. He's running up and down the apron like he just got to get in the ring, got to get in, got to get in. And when he finally gets in. Yeah, they cut off Sting for like five straight minutes. Like they build that heat beautifully. And when he gets in, he just whoops everybody's ass. Yeah. So, of course, Flair gets in and the beatdown ensues. Like he takes his shoe off and beats Sting with it, is how bad this is. Yep. Because, Um, surprise, surprise, (laughs) Sting's a fucking idiot. And the formation of the reformation of the horsemen begins. And they throw Benoit in there later. He's filling the Tully Blanchard guy without a whole lot of charisma who can wrestle role. If it had been Pillman, Benoit, Arn, and Flair, that's an amazing stable. It that should've... is it, but it only lasts about six months. Because it really should have been Austin, but like, let's not dwell on that. <laughs> Yeah, Pillman's only around for about six months after this. Yeah. But just like the uh, things that they will could have done. Yeah. Mean Gene tries to interview Flair and Arn and Pillman at the top of the ramp. He wants to know what the hell is going on here. That was the most despicable thing I've ever seen from you, Ric Flair, which we know is not true. No, Gene's, Gene has seen some shit with Flair. That's not even in the top three times Ric Flair turned on Sting. Flair grabs the mic. He reveals this is the new four horsemen. He's like, y'all fans, you were putting up the four fingers. You wanted this. Now you've got it. My favorite part of this promo is he like turns over to Pillman and is like, what do you got to say about that, Brian? And then immediately yanks the microphone (laughs) away from his mouth and gives it to Arn. Um, Gene then yells at Doug Dillinger off screen to get him an update on Sting, which is just one of, this is the kind of stuff that makes Gene Okerlund so great. Like, it's not just that Gene has an instant chemistry with everybody that he interviews, though he does. It's not just that Gene actually seems like he's following the storylines, which nobody else ever seems like they are. the only one. It's not just that he seems like he cares. He just genuinely seems like he's part of the production. Which is like, if you watch the WWE interviewers now, it seems more like they just took some poor intern and just threw them in front of like The Rock, and it's just like, go ask him a question. Yeah. Here, it seems like Gene is the production, and he's just yeah. like, what's He's in charge of the show. I'm surprised they didn't just make him the commissioner. Yeah. I mean, he I'm has that role. That. He is the Greek chorus of this show. He speaks for the audience. He asks the questions that we want answered. Like, he actually fills that role. No, I don't know that anybody else ever has. And he'll also tell you to put that damn cigarette out. 
And see, that's the thing, too. It's like he gets up in wrestlers' faces. Like, yeah. Ric Flair, you piece of shit. How, how, could you do, you? how could you do that? And Ric Flair doesn't just punch him in the face. Ric Flair is like, Gene, let me explain it to you. Gene, 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 Gene. There's a level of respect that the wrestlers show to Gene that no other interviewer has ever gotten at all. Fucking oh. Mark Henry threw Josh Matthews into orbit for asking him a question. <laughs> it's monster truck time. Oh, no. On commentary for this garbage is Eric Bischoff and some monster truck dude. I don't know who this was. <laughs> he has the charisma of a wet pillow on a humid day. And it's just... Okay, guys... Let me paint you a word picture. Yeah. Let, 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 me, let me try to express through words what's going on here. We have the roof of a parking garage across the street from the arena. This is all filmed the day before, by the way. This isn't actually happening tonight. And it has been cleared off of everything. And they've created a giant ring of parking cones. So, like, and with two monster trucks in the middle. And what they've done is they've pretty clearly lashed the two monster trucks together in the middle so that they would stay connected. Because obviously it would be very stupid to do this any other way. It would be a mess. So they're tied together in the front ends. And Hulk Hogan and the giant get into the monster trucks. They're not in the monster trucks. Yeah. <laughs> And they even have like same shot, same shot of Hogan driving used over and over. Yeah, they have like a fake in in the cockpit angle of Hulk Hogan in there. They're not fucking in there. And so they begin, and literally they're, they're like Eric Bischoff's still talking about this, trying to build it up. And they begin before he's ready. He's like, oh, oh, they've already started. And they just start like pushing against each other, but like one will go. And then the other one, and then the, it's it's such a clearly choreographed feel that's going on. And the idea is for one of them to push the other truck out of the ring entirely. They go for, gosh, what would you say, five minutes? This is five minutes, yeah. Five straight minutes of just watching two monster trucks go back and forth, back and forth, back Which and forth. Which was fun for 30 seconds. Yeah, for 30 seconds it was like, oh, this is kind of cool. And then it wasn't. Now, also, also, I would be remiss if I did not tell you what these monster trucks look like. Because the Giants monster truck is just kind of a generic, kind of like skull and crossbones, Halloween-style truck. Hulk Hogan's monster truck is just a yellow and red truck with gigantic forearms coming out of the doors and holding on to the front of the truck. It is terrifying looking. And there's two explosives hidden yes, somewhere. They, Bischoff repeatedly states that there are two detonations that will happen. And we're talking like Terry Funk C4 match detonations <laughs> that will happen when they drive over them. And at one point they drive over to the ring of cones and like a firework, like a Roman candle goes off behind them. And Bischoff's like a detonation. Good. Oh my God. This is deeply stupid. And somehow it gets worse. Yeah. If this was just the monster truck thing, I'd be like, all right, whatever. But then there's the angle. <laughs> also, you can... they got a helicopter for this shit. How much money do you think they spent on this? Easy. 
gosh, renting. They didn't rent the trucks. They had to buy that Hogan truck because that was a custom built body. Yeah. So we're talking what fifty thousand easy? And choppers expensive. Like maybe a hundred. Yeah, like, and today you could just get a drone and shoot it on that. But this is a different world. And here's the thing. Like there were legitimately popular like name value monster trucks back in those days. Like if Gravedigger is Grave what Digger. is what Giant is driving, then like that's actually something, right? Like Hulk Hogan versus Gravedigger. Like that's a I thing. Remember, did monster truck stuff too? Didn't they have a Steve Austin monster truck? Yes, they did. It was pretty awesome. Because I remember, because I'd always watch monster truck racing after wrestling, and then there was a Steve Austin truck in my monster truck racing, and I was like, ah! Worlds are colliding. It's so beautiful. But yeah, wasn't, so like, monster truck... there a video game called WWF Crush Hour? Yes, there was, my friend. Yes, there was. Never played it. Might have to, might have to do a special episode on that. <laughs> But like you can see why monster trucks are appealing. It caters to basically the same demographic of thirteen-year-old yeah. redneck kids, right? Sure. It's just there's no money in this. Like there's no branding opportunity. There's no. This isn't drawing new eyeballs in, right? Can you imagine one person being a monster truck fan and being like, "I'm going to buy the show to see the monster trucks"? They never would have made it to the monster trucks. This show is such fucking garbage. <sighs> it's probably for the best that nobody bought this. Oh okay, but we haven't even gotten to the fucking crazy part yet. God. Yeah. Okay. So after the match, like Hogan gets out of his truck, Giant gets out of his truck, Giant attacks Hogan, like chokes him drags him over to the edge, like gets him up on the ledge, tries to throw Hogan off the roof, but Hogan fights back, hits some punches, and it's Giant who ends up going off the roof. And then as he goes over the roof, Hogan tries to catch him valiantly. And then as Giant goes over, Hogan looks back at the camera and goes, Oh no! Help! Help! We need help! A Hulk death. Hulk Hogan killed the giant. He killed murdered. him. He murdered him. Hey, this was self-defense, brother. Okay, but understand for the rest of this show that as far as we're aware, just 30 seconds ago, Hulk Hogan murdered the giant and believes him to be dead. That's yeah. very important. I, this is way too far. Like, one, like, just who's the audience? Again, who's the audience for this? Kids, I guess? Want to see somebody die? Is the idea of this that they're going to portray that the giant is so fucking tough that he no-sells death? Yeah, that he fell off the side of an arena. Maybe he fell into the river. But even then, the surface tension of the water would smash his body. Oh, yeah. We're four or five stories up. Like, there's no way. Yeah. It's I, just... <laughs> what I love is how Heenan sells the gravity of this. But okay, he's like, how are we still having a wrestling show? What are we doing here? This is what I want to talk about. This is the best part of this. Because Bobby Heenan, who usually is not invested in what is going on on screen at all, just talks shit about it, doesn't really care. 
Bobby Heenan for the next 20 or for 10 minutes or whatever it is, is just obsessively asking for an update on the giant. He's just like, why are we, why are people wrestling? What's happening just across the street? Somebody just died. I, I knew his dad. I'd known him since he was a little kid. What's happening with him? Will somebody please tell me like he's at the verge of tears. And the whole time, Tony Schiavone sitting there like, yeah, whatever, dude. About to say like, yeah, that that sucked. All right, well, on to the next match. And Bobby Heenan is visibly angry at him, just like, no, you can't say that. I know his father. This is wrong. <laughs> and then later, when spoiler alert, the giant comes back out, Bobby Heenan delivers just like one line, like, oh, he's back, yay, <laughs> and that's it. So we have a match. We've got Lex Luger against Randy Savage in the uh, sub-main event. Uh, yeah. Quick five-minute match. Uh, they fight on the floor. Uh, Jimmy Hart comes down. He's uh, still Savage's, or he's still uh, Hogan's manager at this point. Um, Hart gets knocked off the apron when Savage runs Luger into him. Savage then follows up with a flying elbow for the pin. I'm kind of surprised they had Savage win here. Seems like with Luger turning heel, Luger being the new guy, you'd have Luger find a way to fuck Savage. But I suspect this might have been a test of Luger's willingness to do a job. Yeah. And I mean, anytime that Luger was presented with that, he pretty much passed the test. It's one of the big reasons why they push him so hard later on. Yeah. I. Can totally believe this is Bischoff wanting to see. Like when I ask Luger to lose on pay per view, is he going to tell me he won't do it and then I can just get rid of him? Yep. Um, Shivani and Heenan bicker about the situation with the Giant for a while. Mostly Heenan is just ranting that no one will tell him what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> As well you would if that was a real situation. Then we go to the ring where Michael Buffer does the introductions. Hogan makes his entrance in all black, stoically walks to the ring. Uh, he grabs the mic when he gets in the ring and says what happened earlier was an accident. Tell it to the cops, brother. He doesn't really seem that concerned that he just <laughs> committed a murder. He's yeah. like, uh, dude, I... Uh, just want to say that uh, what happened earlier was a complete accident. It was not what I was intending to have happen. What were you intending to have happen while you were punching him on the ledge of that building? He's trying to protect himself, brother. Oh, man. And then the giant comes down the aisle. <laughs> and they, they. What are we way, doing here? They way undersell this, too, because yeah. they thought he was dead. And they're literally like, oh. All right, well, on to the match. <laughs> Shouldn't they be speculating that he like must have some mystical powers? Yes, it's the Dungeon of Doom, you would think so. If you're if you're just doing like the hokey stuff, like yeah, like Giant died and like Taskmaster brought him back to life with some black magic would have been an interesting way to go. That makes by far the most sense. Does it really, though? Does no. any of this? None of this could possibly make any sense. So literally what happens is like the giant just no-sells a five-story fall and then immediately begins to sell Hogan's punches, which... Oh, yeah. 
Worse that, than death. That's the problem. Is that like, oh, falling to my death, no big deal. Oh no, Hulk Hogan's punching me. Oh no, I'm falling. I've got a spot idea. Good or bad idea. Hogan slams him and Giant just stands right back up. Hulk, the, the Giant is not susceptible to fall damage. Yeah, true. I kind of uh, love that idea of like the, doing like the famous Andre yes. spot and him being like, nope. No, it doesn't work on me, brother. And here's the other thing, too. Like, if you want to build the giant as, like, the guy for Hogan, right? He's got to beat Hogan here, doesn't he? Yes. He should have choked, slammed him right through the mat. It should have been over with. Like, he should have the whole, they should have done the whole sequence from WrestleMania 3. And then he just stands right the back up, choke slams him one, two, three. Yeah. I. Yeah, you just got to. He destroys him. And I mean, and I know he's here saying, How could Hulk? Here's the thing Hogan shouldn't have done the dark side turn yet. That should come after he loses to the giant. Exactly. Reinvent himself. Yeah. It's what John Cena should have done after Brock Lesnar killed him. Yes. You got to become something different to have a chance against this new threat. That In the meantime, been- the that giant, sounds suspiciously like a compelling storyline. I had to say, in the meantime, the giant can work with Savage, can work with Luger, can work with Sting. You got all these baby faces that need a direction who could work. Put them in over with the giant. Teach him to work. The giant beats everybody. It's yeah, got to be the plan. slays here. everybody. You go to Bash at the Beach, Starcade, whatever the fuck you want to do it. Have the rematch. It's amazing. Instead, they have a shitty match here. Hogan gets choke slammed. Uh, he hulks up, punches, big boot, body slam, leg drop. Ref got bumped. The camera didn't catch it, but it turns out Jimmy Hart you know, hit the ref and knocked him out. Hart then hits Hogan with the title belt. Giant locks Hogan in a bear hug. Savage comes out to save Hogan, but Luger cuts him off. And then coming down the aisle is the Yeti. The Yeti. The Yeti. And he pursues. Oh my God. He proceeds to destroy his career with one move. You know what? I've never never done this in a podcast before. But let me paint you a second word picture. (laughs) Okay. The Yeti wrapped in gauze like a mummy, which you might know to be a different supernatural thing than a Yeti, <laughs> strolls down to the ring, is very tall. Very tall. The giant has Hulk Hogan in a bear hug. He's just kind of jiggling him about. It's a lazy bear hug. The Yeti grabs around Hulk Hogan and the giant as if they're going to do a double bear hug to squeeze the life out of Hulkamania. But instead of squeezing... What he chooses to do is gyrate his hips wildly, just from side to side, like, Eah! and he looks like a demented stripper humping Hulk Hogan. There's no other <laughs> way to put it. We get the rare three-man devil's triangle. It genuinely looks like Hulk Hogan is squished in some sort of sexual delight. And I, that's about the moment, like, thank God this is the main event, because that's about the moment I would have tapped out, like, Look, I can't watch anything else after this. <laughs> Oh, God. How did anyone continue to watch this company after this? And, like, literally, they kill the Yeti 
literally before he gets back to the curtain, his career is over. Like it's done. <laughs> Like they've already advertised him for being at World War III the next month where they were going to have a giant in every ring. And they've already changed his gimmick by the time they get there to the super giant ninja. Yeah. Yeah, much better. Uh, they, yeah, he's out of that battle royal in like 30 seconds. Like literally, like that's the, that's the situation that we're in. Like they've... They had that super hot segment on Nitro that Steve mentioned where the fans really respond and they have all this hype about the insurance policy and all of this shit. And it's dead, dead in the water the second it hits the television. Like, that's just a disaster. Uh, Luger also rocks Hogan. Then we get the double bear hug on Savage and then a torture rack on Savage. Giant is announced as the winner by disqualification. Buffer says that the title cannot change hands on a disqualification. Uh, Giant grabs the title and celebrates with it. Uh, the next night on Nitro, they would reveal that Jimmy Hart snuck a clause into the contract that Hogan would lose the title if he was disqualified. Ultimately, the title will be held up and put on the line at World War Three in the first ever Three-ring, 60-man battle royal. Ooh. Wow. Uh, how about that? How about it? <laughs> yeah. Like, World War Three is a concept that seems interesting. It's a spectacle. It sucked in practice because they yeah. couldn't. This would be okay today with widescreen HD TVs. Yeah. Back then, you could not see what the hell was going on. Man, I'm, I'm gonna lay a marker down. They're gonna do a World War Three in Saudi Arabia. That's gonna when they're running out of like spectacles, they're gonna do this. Or MLW is going to do this, but I don't think they can afford to pay sixty guys for one night. I think you're right. But I would, I yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing WWE try this at some point. It's a fun spectacle. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, or like war games or like there's so many ideas that you could pull from WCW that were good ideas. They just didn't have the ability to do shit with them. So, I mean, it's I would love to see a World War Three done right. They have so many wrestlers. I mean, why not? They've got 60. I mean, WCW had 60 guys on their regular roster, too, although it was always fun to see uh, who they managed to uh, pull in to get to get to 60 because it was a little tough. They had to use some guys they didn't usually use. Oh, shit. It's Lanny Poffo. Who knew he was here? And that is a wrap for WCW Halloween Havoc 1995. I award you zero stars. Yeah. Like this. We've watched some shit, guys, but there's no redeeming value to this one at all. True, unmitigated garbage was what this was. I don't think we've ever watched a show that I couldn't recommend a single segment of. Like, I wouldn't even recommend that you hate watch this for funs. Like, this isn't even one of those shows. Like, this is just trash. Yeah, the the one really unintentionally funny thing is the Yeti stuff, and you've seen that. Exactly. So... Don't ever watch this. You don't need the context. Just go watch something else that's way funnier. Yeah. Oh, so next week we're going to have another train wreck of a show. It's WCW Halloween Havoc 1998. 
It's the ultimate rematch, Hollywood Hogan versus the ultimate warrior, and man, did it suck. Woof. Woof, 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 woof. We're really laying in the good stuff right now. Goldberg versus Diamond Dallas Page for the WSW title. Uh, Kevin Nash versus Scott Hall. Sting versus Bret Hart. And lots and lots of other matches because the show ran so long, they ended up running out of satellite time. And truly in the spirit of the original show, we won't be covering Goldberg versus Page until the following (laughs) day. That's right. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week.